Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm pretty hungry right now. Josh, bring that titty over here and let me get some of that milk. Okay. (laughs) Jason, finding the controversial elements in this film that we're about to watch or that we are about to talk about. We watched it already, right? We did watch this. I watched it. I watched it too. It took me, I think, uh, two and a half weeks, but I watched it also. (laughs) Well, in your defense, you were exiled from your condo because of a political coup. So, you know, you couldn't watch it until you were reinstated as a puppet governor of your True. condo. True. Yes, I am now uh, a puppet critic of the, uh, I don't even know. I'm trying. Manchuko. <laughs> sure. You're Manchuko's uh, leading quote unquote film critic. Yeah. And all I do is give positive reviews to uh, Godzilla movies or something. <laughs> What are we talking about? In this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1987, and we're here at the Academy Awards Best Picture winner, which is The Last Emperor from director Bernardo Bertolucci. And I feel like, regardless of my personal opinion of this film, I feel like this is one of those Best Picture winners that has kind of been forgotten, that doesn't seem like it's much in the cultural conversation anymore. I would agree, but this Oscar year was not the greatest in general, I think you would have to say, you know, Last Emperor beat Broadcast News, good movie, Uh, Fatal Attraction, good movie, Hope and Glory by John Borman, I don't think any of us have seen, and Moonstruck we already covered. Those are all good movies, but I don't think you look at that and be like, oh, this is the murderer's row that we get sometimes. Do you think so? Yeah, I guess not. I mean, I love Moonstruck, obviously, as we talked about in that episode. And and I love that it was nominated for Best Picture because it's not the kind of movie that you think of winning an Oscar, really, almost of any kind. And I haven't seen broadcast news in a while, but I and, and ditto Fatal Attraction. I like those both, but I'd have to kind of revisit them to to assess. But but all of those, those three especially, feel like very mainstream popcorn-y type films that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be nominated for Best Picture. I mean, this movie, even if it's been semi-forgotten, is a very stereotypical like Oscar Best Picture winner. It's this long-ass historical epic. Yeah, I I think you're right. I mean, and Bertolucci made a number of different types of films, right? He was pushing a lot of boundaries. So um, when you say that this is like Oscar bait, you got to take into context that he really uh, showed a diverse sense as a filmmaker. But, you know, not just an Oscar winner, but I mean, this for the longest period of time, for a period of time anyway, it had the record. It swept, it won nine out of nine Oscars. And I think We've talked about some that have won more, uh, English Patient and Lord of the Rings, but this was like, a, this was a war horse, man. Just kind of came into town and blew everything away. Right. I mean, I think some that we've talked about were nominated for more and thus won more, but maybe didn't win everything that they were nominated for. I don't remember all the details. But yeah, this did win nine Oscars, all that it was nominated for, including Best Picture. Best Director for Bertolucci, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Costume Design, Best Editing, Best Original Score, and Best Sound. It was kind of interesting to me that you think usually movies like this that just get nominated across the board and are dominating these awards will also be nominated for acting awards, and there were no acting nominations for would you who I mean, I guess Peter O'Toole, considering what the Oscars are, would have been the choice here, right? Right. I mean, I'm not saying that that they should have been nominated. I just think that it's odd for that to happen. And and Peter O'Toole was nominated, I believe, either for a Golden Globe or a BAFTA. Um, so yeah, of course, he was a huge titan of acting at this point and the kind of person who would probably just get nominated for doing anything. Um, So, yeah, you would expect that. But I mean, John Lone, who is the main star of this film, who plays The Last Emperor, I mean, in a movie that's so dominant, you think that the main star of it would get a nomination as well. And that didn't happen. 
And he's he's good in the movie. I mean, Michael Wall, uh, Michael Wall Street one for Douglas, Josh. <laughs> Michael <laughs> Doug, one Michael Wall Doug. Street. Did you know that was a uh, hearkening back to our uh, Princess Bride episode when we talked about Andre the Giant? There, I believe there was a wrestler, Michael Wall Street, uh, at one point in time where he mm. was. Uh, it was IRS or Winar Shyster, Mike Rotundo. I think he was Michael Michael Wall Street at some point. Anyway, Mike Michael Douglas beat uh, one for Wall Street. William Hurt Broadcast News, Marcelo Mastriani, Dark Eyes. I've never seen uh, Marcello in that one. Have you? I've never Dark Eyes. I don't think I've even heard of that. Jack Nicholson, Ironweed, and uh, Robin Williams, Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, and I believe you've told us you're not a fan of his performance in that one. I'm not a fan of him in general. I've never seen Good Morning Vietnam, though. No. Uh, I'm just confusing you with other hater podcasters out there. Yeah, there's Josh. a lot of them. But I mean, I guess so. Neither of us are really in a place to say, like, who would we take out? Who would, you know, if we were going to put him in? Right. And I'm, like I said, I'm not even saying that he deserved to be in there. I'm just saying that it's rare, I think, for a movie to get this many nominations and not a single acting nomination. So, uh, Josh, tell me what do all the nominees have in common that John Lone doesn't have? Yeah. I mean, that's a fair <laughs> assessment. But at the same time, this movie got tons of like it wasn't like this movie was ignored because of that subject matter <laughs> um so you know but yes that is a that is a fair assessment and and i'd i'd have to look it up again to just be sure but it's possible that the majority of the the behind the scenes people who were nominated and who won in all those other categories are are white people yeah. <laughs> um the the i just want to say the the one for me that i if you look at this, that um, and by the way, uh, it's it's not all that because the original score was David Byrne, Kong Su, and uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, in the other categories, though, I, I would imagine it is, but I, I'd have to check that to be sure. So yeah. I'm just assuming racism, which is generally a, a reasonable assumption to make. <laughs> I, I think so, especially for as you go back in time with uh, the Oscars. Yeah. But um, to me. The one that I was really happy uh, that won, uh, even at the age of seven, Josh, mm. I remember yelling, Vittorio Storaro, this <laughs> one's for you. Um, I just love him as a cinematographer. And, um, you know, we I think we, we talked about him recently on Ishtar. And I remember watching this. And uh, while I was watching this, I was like, man, you know, uh, we were in our Ishtar episode, we were saying, what does Elaine May deserve blame for? And what doesn't she deserve blame for? But not letting Vittorio Storaro pick the shots was a huge mistake for her because if you look at this, like, and his other work, he's he's incredible, man. He is very talented, and there there are some really striking visual moments in this film, which is one of the only things that I liked about it. And and even then, as talented as he is, I feel like maybe the visual power of this movie was a bit overstated, or I expected it to be more overwhelming before watching this movie well he also won for apocalypse now in reds so um you know he's he's done the thing but i i, I think the setting and the cinematography um and the music and the like set and costume design so like a lot of the technical elements are really the the standout elements of this film yeah they are and it's it's nice to look at but not for nearly three hours <laughs> um in addition to those Oscars, uh, it did. It won three BAFTAs and four Golden Globes, including the Best Picture Award from both of those organizations. It wasn't a big box office hit. It grossed $44 million on its budget of $23.8 million. And so, you know, that's, that's okay. And especially for a nearly three-hour historical epic, that's a pretty decent result. But for a Best Picture winner, you would think it might have been able to do a little better than that. Well, you would, but you have outsized expectations. Like you were like, "Ooh, the new Exorcist is going to make eighty million dollars." Put it up against Taylor Swift. What a random thing to say! <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with this or anything. Josh, <laughs> is this the first time that uh, that you've been surprised by something random I've done in this podcast, Josh? No, no, not at all. But it doesn't mean I can't point it out. <laughs> Thank you. You can. Yeah. Fair enough. So uh, critics were generally into this film. Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs up and both had it on their top 10 lists for the year. Siskel had it at number one and Woo! Ebert had it at number four. So yeah, they were definitely super into this film. Josh, quick analysis. Number one, 
can't get higher than that on those lists. Man, you know, you you are not wrong about that. <laughs> so true. Well, I, you know, as we've said, we're we're big math guys here. Absolutely. And, we're really and, crun- uh, crunching the numbers here yeah, on this and podcast. I, I, I did that in my head. Number one, that's top. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Roger Ebert in his review said, there aren't a lot of action scenes in The Last Emperor and little enough intrigue. As in Gandhi, great historical changes take place during The Last Emperor, but unlike Gandhi, the emperor has no influence on them. His life is a sad irony. His end is a bittersweet elegy, but it is precisely because so little, quote, happens in this epic that its vast and expensive production schedule is important. When we see those thousands of servants bowing to a little boy, for example, the image is effective precisely because the kowtowing means nothing to the boy, and the lives of the servants have been dedicated to no useful purpose. Everything involving the life of Puyi was a waste. Everything except one thing the notion that a single human life could have infinite value. Hmm. I mean, everything was a waste seems like a pretty the major statement to make there. Yeah, I mean, I think he is sort of right. I mean, I, I think part of the point of this movie is the idea that, that Puyi, the last emperor of China, was was passive that that every all this this giant upheaval that was part of his life and that he just kind of happened to be there when china underwent this huge revolution that really he didn't have anything to do with it and and he's just sort of like pushed along by forces outside his control i mean you know like the becoming the puppet government of manchukuo of the japanese and everything you know being arrested by the communists and supposedly rehabilitated all of it just sort of happens to him and to me that was a very frustrating thing about watching this film but i think that is on purpose in in the the way that that bertolucci is presenting his life yeah i was thinking when i was watching this about um how badly you were going to eviscerate the children in this film (laughs) and um i just thought like you know um, in a lot of ways, Puyi is not a likable character, but um, you have to, you know, look at the nature versus nurture argument, which we've been getting to for a long time here on Awesome Movie Year, you know. I mean, he really didn't have a chance, right? Like, he got taken away too. He's like, you're the emperor. Everyone did everything for him. He was obviously, you grow up like that, you're going to be incredibly spoiled. So um, I get that he was passive, but I don't think he really had a chance to be active in anything. I mean, he was an emperor in... A uh, tiny city without knowing that an entire country had uh, evolved around him, right? Right, and I think that is the point of the film. And and you're absolutely right that I mean the circumstances under which he grew up are are insane, and n- no person could become a well-adjusted person under those circumstances. And I'm not saying that the life of Puyi should have been different or something like he should have changed it in order to please me. But I think you're going to make a movie about his life. It's hard to get into a movie about a protagonist who is this passive and who not in it, even it's not even that he's a, an unlikable character is that he's a blank slate who barely feels like a person. I watched two hours and 45 minutes of this guy's life and felt like I didn't know anything about who he was. I mean, what was the dance move called? He liked to do the quick step or whatever. Yeah, I forget did. what it was called. I think that is what it was called. Yeah. Um, but. I do think this is a trap in these kind of Oscar Beatty movies, right? Where you're telling such a big story and it's like, and then this happened and then this happened and this happened. And you're like, well, what is the catalyst? How does our character, our protagonist um, relate to that? And I agree with you. This is like, I mean, look, I'm a, you know, I'm a history guy, you know, and uh, to keep up with all the events of history that happened in this movie is really hard. Like you, it's a lot of research that you have to do to understand uh, everything that's going on in here. Yeah, there were so many characters coming in and out of this film and in and out of you know Puyi's life related to all the various different political factions and circumstances. And most of the time, I had no idea who any of them were. And so it was hard to feel an impact when something happened to those characters or when they did something uh, drastic related to Puyi because I just wasn't sure what what their motivations were, what the consequences were of their actions. It was all just kind of, I felt like it was all happening to me as a viewer too. And I didn't quite 
follow it. And, you know, maybe I wasn't working hard enough to meet the movie on its level, but it didn't seem worth the effort. I think if there's one character who you do get that from, it's uh, Joan Chen's character, his wife, uh, you know, who becomes a uh, uh, Wen Rong is her name. And uh, she becomes an opium addict. And I think like you do see her progression of isolation and loneliness and you know, obviously she's under terrible influences by like a, a Japanese spy slash lover. So yeah, I think that would be the character that's almost most well-defined of their downfall. Yeah. And even that, I mean, and Joan Chen is a good actor, but even, even that is pretty sketchy. I felt so, uh, Sheila Benson in the Los Angeles times also addresses some of this stuff about the passive nature of the protagonist. She said, It's supposed to be a story of inner peace through ideological retraining, a fairy tale story with a Maoist twist, intoxicatingly lavish on one hand, primly doctrinaire on the other, just the qualities that have piqued Bertolucci's sensibilities in the past. The sensualist, however, seems to have gotten the upper hand over the ideologue. The sense of Puyi's peace and joy after his release into modern China in 1960 with the title Citizen is lost somewhere. The remolded man casts almost no shadow, even less than the impassive emperor. Bertolucci believes that his late introduction to humanity took. Based on the film's evidence alone, his audiences may not be so sure. Um, I want you to repeat part of that in a second, but I do want to say out of that um, element of him kind of becoming just lost in the crowd, so to speak, becoming just another person. I think the point is that's what he wanted at that point in time, right? He he had gone to prison. He had been exiled. This has happened over and over. And he's like, oh, cool, I can live. And, you know, he, quote unquote, uh, took responsibility for the actions of his government. So I think when he was just a gardener, which if you read about Puyi, he was also like in politics after this point in time, he was on like, you know, what, what would be considered like Congress for us. So I don't necessarily think that matches his real life the way in the movie. It just seems like, hey, I just want to live the rest of my life out and not deal with all this drama. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what she's trying to say here and saying that that she doesn't necessarily buy it. Right. That the movie is saying what you what you're saying, that 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 Puyi has finally achieved this piece by being just another face in the crowd, a gardener who, you know, in that final scene when he comes up to the 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 parade of shame or whatever uh nobody knows that he is puyi uh, or that's not the final scene that's the second to last scene um nobody knows that he was once the emperor and that's the way that he likes it and i think what she's saying is she doesn't really buy into that and i think that that's fair is that i didn't feel like his journey as a person if that's where the journey is taking him was was particularly convincing I didn't feel like I understood him as a person. And it a lot of the time seemed like he was sort of a different kind of person from scene to scene, depending on the political context and depending on what the movie was trying to do. And it didn't feel like an evolution. It just felt sort of haphazard. I think that's fair. Maybe I had misunderstood the quote, but I also think you could say that like, he's just kind of like, he's always, I'm the emperor and uh, he's just going to go with the flow to keep him in that position at all times. Like, you know, when we're talking about the last emperor at this point is what you see the last emperor of, right? You could say China, but like, it would be like saying, well, Queen Elizabeth runs England or, you know, King Charles now at this point in time, right? Yeah. I don't think Um, Queen Elizabeth runs anything anymore. No, but imagine if you were like King Charles uh, runs England, but he's also relegated to just Buckingham Palace and he doesn't know anything else that's going on outside of it, right? Like it's, there's a lot of, uh, complications going on here. Uh, Josh, can you talk? Can you just repeat that part of the quote where she was saying these are like the signature earmarks of Bertolucci? Uh, yeah, she says uh, it's intoxicatingly lavish on the one hand, primly doctrinaire on the other, just the qualities that have piqued Bertolucci's sensibilities in the past. And she, uh, in parenthesis, cites The Conformist and 1900 which yeah. I know you watched The Conformist just before this, but I haven't seen it. I love The Conformist. It will probably be on my year-end uh, list of first-time watches. And uh, talk about Storaro. I think like that was in 1970, so 
Uh, these guys are like young and just taking like crazy chances, not just with the storytelling. I mean, this is also right in New Hollywood, right? So um, obviously they're in Italy, but I think those between the French wave and New Hollywood, those influences are kind of convening with um, obviously what's going on in the Italian film movement. But you watch that movie and you're like, I, I can't tell you how many times like I had to like re, uh, you know, just click back 10 seconds to rewatch a shot because they're so incredible. Like it's amazingly shot and it's a good movie anyway. So I recommend it. 1900 is a five hour movie. Yeah, I think it's on Prime at the time of this recording, uh, dealing with like uh, different types of classes of citizens, of farmers, and and he does a lot. Of Bertolucci always deals with like, you know, the quote unquote different classes of people. But um, you know, it's a five hour movie, and today you'd be like a five hour movie, but today it would be a five hour you know limited series. Right. And I mean, this this would be too. And in fact, there is like a three and a half hour cut of this film that was released uh, on television. And that is essentially like a miniseries. So not that I would have wanted to watch more of this, but I feel like maybe that structure would have helped it in some way. I don't know. There is a uh, TV show. I could not find it anywhere here in America called Legends of the Last Emperor. Uh, this drama tells the story of Chinese last emperor Pu Yi, his three ascensions to the throne, four marriages, five wives, and five exiles. So that extra hour, Josh, could have packed a lot in. Right. I mean, they <laughs> definitely have to streamline some of this and leave out certain people in his life in order to fit this even in the long running time that it has. Um, so finally, Pauline Kael in The New Yorker was not a fan of this film. She said, Bertolucci doesn't intend us to see Pu Yi as the hero or the anti-hero or even the comic victim of his life. Rather, he's a man without will or backbone who lives his life as spectacle, who watches his life go by. And since he experiences his life as spectacle, we're given only spectacle, a historical pageant without a protagonist. There's an idea here, but it's a dippy idea. It results in a passive movie. There's no toughness in Peplo's writing. The dialogue is waxy. And Bertolucci, given the opportunity to shoot the palaces and courtyards and labyrinthine walled paths of the 250-acre Forbidden City, works so gracefully that the movie is all vistas, all squat facades and heavy silks, red and brilliant yellows. The chinoiserie is pleasant enough, but Bertolucci's staging, Vittorio Storaro's cinematography, and Ferdinando Scarfiati's sets aren't in the service of anything in particular, and they make no real mark on you. I feel like we've, it's interesting that that's the last review because I think we've kind of talked all the, about all these things, right? So yeah. it's beautiful. It's incredible with costumes and the colors of the thing, but like um, the technical elements are the standout elements to go further. By the way, what did she say? Shinwari? Shinwazari, which is like, Amazing. like or, orientalism, basically, mm, you know, so. the, exotic, the exoticization of, of, of Eastern imagery. I mean, look, this was the first movie, uh, first Western film to be made in the Forbidden City uh, since 1949. And that's pretty incredible. And also, like I had read that uh, a little later, they another movie came in to uh, film there and they gave it six hours. Oh, here it is. It's not a little later. It's Shanghai Noon, Josh. Shanghai Noon. Oh, when, yes. well, fellow Best Picture winner, Shanghai yeah. Noon. Talk about those Oscar sweepers. So, yeah. uh, when Shanghai Noon filmed in the Forbidden City, they were given only six hours. The producers of The Last Emperor were given six months with full government cooperation. You know, 19,000 extras. Bring the army out. Tell them, forget there's a war going on. Forget it. We got to do a parade scene today. Yeah. I mean, this was a movie produced definitely with the full cooperation of the Chinese government. And you know, everything that that entails. And if there's some criticism in some of those reviews of the idea that this is like a, you know, pro-communist government film in some way, presumably that's part of being able to get it approved by the Chinese government so that they could shoot it there. And that's kind of just how you have to do that. Right. Hey, you can come film this thing, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just kind of, you know, take a quick look. They said there weren't too many notes and uh, Bertolucci had actually presented them two projects and the Chinese government chose to do this one. So had you watched this before, Jason? I feel like, yeah, I've seen this before, but I can't tell you when. I was wondering, we we had a, you and I had a religion and philosophy class in high school with Mr. Baranoff. 
Now, I remember he showed us either in that class or another class, he showed us Little Buddha, which is another of Bertolucci's movie and uh, what was what was called at the time the Oriental Trilogy, which obviously we would not call it that today. Uh, it was uh, The Last Emperor. It was shel- The Sheltering Sky, which does not have a good reputation, and Little Buddha, which is also good. So I wonder if I saw it in his class, but then you would have seen it, and I don't think you've ever seen it. So I have no idea where I saw this movie. Yeah, I had not seen this, nor have I seen Little Buddha, as far as I can recall. So I definitely hadn't seen this. Um, I'm pretty sure I haven't seen that either. So um, also, I might have not taken that class. <laughs> so maybe you did see it. We, I took, I took, we had a history with him, like the regular history. Yeah, but European I feel like history. that religion and philosophy, this is really important stuff about our high yeah. school days. I think like that re- religion and philosophy class was an elective that I didn't elect to take. But oh, maybe you well, did. Maybe that's where I saw it. But Josh, wh- now that we know this, what else are you hiding? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I was hiding it. I just, we, we, you know, didn't remember. I was taking a, the mad, the possessed, and the dead with Mrs. Uh, Richardson, which was a class about horror fiction that I was mm-hmm. into. I don't even know who Mrs. Richardson is. Oh man, shout out to Mrs. Richardson. Who's that? Jason has forgotten you. Let's let's move on from our high school uh, reminiscing. Josh, just to say, um, we could have had our old teacher, Mr. Baranoff, as a guest on this podcast, and then we wouldn't have had to spoken for the entire hour because he could have just gone on an entire rant about the politics the movie the history and just done the job for us today well i'm glad we're here to do it ourselves instead um i had not seen this film nor have i seen all that much from bertolucci like i said i didn't watch the conformist i wanted to because you were recommending it so highly and i didn't have time to do that this week i the only bertolucci films i've seen are uh the dreamers and last tango in paris and uh, from, you know, basically opposite ends of his career, but both of those very sensuous, erotic films, of course. And The Dreamers does deal with some political stuff set during the 1968 protests in Paris, but it's mostly about the sex. So um, not not as much about all the, the, the historical stuff like this film. Um, Dave, had you watched this before? It really rang a bell and i was wondering if i had seen it in school too uh like were you in my religion and philosophy maybe i was maybe maybe you were picking on me in the back of class but uh yeah no i i don't remember it though i just kind of felt like i maybe had so it's basically a first time watch and i also saw the dreamers a while back and i remember liking it but it's been a while yeah i loved the dreamers which i had never seen a berlucci film at that time and i think i you know, that was when I first had started reviewing films and I probably had it on my top 10 list that year and I haven't revisited since then, but, but I like that quite a lot. Yeah. So, uh, anything else you want to say about the background of this film, Jason? Uh, there's a, this is less about the film and more about the first forbidden city, Josh. There is a 1973 documentary, uh, that was filmed there and, uh, that's also not easy to find. So, uh, give it a shot, Josh, give it a shot. Okay. It's called The Forbidden City. It's by Lucy Jarvis. I'll take a look. (laughs) We'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on The Last Emperor. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1987, we are talking about the best picture winner, The Last Emperor. Not, Not my pick for best picture of 1987. Yeah, well, Siskel disagrees with you. Siskel does, and many other people. I mean, there, I, I, there was a lot of uh, criticism there in the reviews that I read, but overall, you know, the response to this film was very positive. And I guess I can understand that in the sense that it does feel like this very Oscar baity kind of film, but also, as we we've, we've said a bunch of times already, like the the technical aspects are are impressive. It feels like an important story. I mean, it's it's going through these like major historical events. It feels like something that that you should want to know about and want to care about. And yet I I could not care about anything that happened in this film to any of these people. Well, that would make it more difficult to enjoy it, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it did. It did indeed. I mean, did you feel like you you talked about Joan Chen's character? So, I mean, did you feel like you understood these characters or you cared about them as people? I mean, in broad strokes, I would say so. I think, I think you do understand Puyi more than they're giving him credit for, or the the writing or the performance, because I don't think maybe there are those deeper layers to him. I mean, and that's not a knock on him. That goes again, like 
how could anyone uh, survive this and have, like you said, be well adjusted? I did think there was a moment here after he was reinstated as the puppet governor of Manchuka or the emperor, uh, where the Japanese were really in control, that you could have done a really cool psychological thriller, right? About a um, a man who gets uh, uh, reascended to his life right as the throne, but it turns out um, there, are other, there are other forces at work who really control it. And every time that he goes against them, they can just do something terrible to him like murder his baby upon birth which happened in this film yeah and in real life too apparently and it wasn't yeah. his baby it was uh it oh, was the, his wife's yeah. uh, child with a uh driver yeah right. the driver that she had an affair with right um yeah i mean i think maybe part of it too as you were saying like it's so difficult to encapsulate someone's entire i mean this movie begins when he's like two years old and ends at the end of his life you know and it's hard to to, to encapsulate all that and i think nowadays, which I think is a, is a good trend, is that a lot of biopics will instead pick, you know, one particular stretch and maybe a movie that was just about that period, that Manchukuo period, which does seem like it's it's more fruitful for drama, right? It's because it's like he lost power and now he thinks he's got it back. But of course, he really doesn't. Maybe that narrower focus would have made for a more interesting film that you could grab onto a little more in terms of who these people are and, and what their relationships mean. I also wonder though, if you would have had less understanding of the Puyi character, because I think you needed to see all that stuff with him as like a child where literally the entire civilization is doting over his every move. Yeah. They're like evaluating his bowel movements and stuff. I mean, it is, it is pretty extreme. Right. My little reference in the beginning of uh, the breastfeeding, that is an awkward scene to watch because he is too old to be breastfeeding at that point in time. And um, no one really stopped him. That was his wet nurse um, who was still giving him that milk. And it was just like, eh, maybe, maybe uh, go to the store, go to the Seven Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> maybe go to the supermarket, get some different milk there. Yeah. I mean, that I think is, is you know, it's true to life that he did breastfeed until he was what eight or nine years old or something and and then when he finally stopped they sent away that that woman who was his wet nurse who was basically like his mother figure because his actual mother he was taken away from her when he was crowned emperor and didn't see her and uh, we find out you know there's a scene here in the film where he learns that she's died and he, they won't even let him go like to her funeral or whatever and but he hasn't seen her for essentially his whole life at that point so the wet nurse is the woman who raised him and they just also take her away one day unceremoniously and he's not able to do anything about it. So yeah, all of that does go to the idea of him being fucked up mentally. And I understand that, but it, I just didn't find it. I didn't feel like it went below the surface on that in any way. And maybe that, you know, part of that is the direction and the writing, but also the performance. You know, sometimes you can have a movie like that where, there's not a lot of depth in the writing, but you can get that sense from an actor just in the way they carry themselves or the way they deliver dialogue. And not that John Lone is bad, but I just didn't feel like there was much going on there. I think also that type of diminishment of uh, kind of the emotional range or the kind of uh, defeated attitude that he might have could have also been shown more in the prison sequences where he goes from literally ruling over these people to them telling him, you're not our ruler and you're going to do what we say now type things. Right. And I think they try to show that a little with the idea that even in prison, you know, people who were his loyalists or who were part of his like entourage or whatever, or again, I don't know, like half the time I was like, I don't know who this is, but somebody related to that. There are people who are still like serving him in prison, right? And at one point, they take him away from those people and put him in a cell with people, I think is from like the Manchukuo government or something like that, who are not beholden to him in that way. And he doesn't even know how to, you know, tie his own shoe or whatever, because right. he's not used to having to do that. So yeah, I think there's more that you could have explored there in a, in a personal sense with like, how do you handle that? How, how is some person who lived their life that way handle this? But I guess I feel like we're supposed to believe in him like right being rehabilitated during that period or genuinely coming around to believing in the communist cause and at the end of the movie you know he's trying to stick up for the 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 
guy who was you the know, prison governor. Right. Right. His his sort of not torturer, I guess, but they imply that there could be some torture. here. No, I think, well, where they didn't imply that is when Puyi was the emperor in the Forbidden City. And if you read about him, he was abusive to the eunuchs and, you know, just was pretty terrible in some ways, uh, you know. Um, and in the movie, he's terrible to animals, too, which I didn't like. But uh, it seems like that governor, because I thought that was an interesting dichotomy. You had two totally different styles of performance. Uh, Ying Rao Chang played Jin Yuan, the prison governor, and then Rick Young played the interrogator. And I thought Yin Rao Chang was so good in this movie. And I thought Rick Young, who's worked in so many other movies and has had such a long career, was so one note as the interrogator. I didn't. I thought he was just, I'm loud, I'm loud, I'm loud, you know, and it just had no levels. But I thought the prison governor really, if you wanted to see a character that had a point of view, I thought he showcased that. Yeah, I mean, that 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 interrogator character definitely does feel like a little overwrought. And he's just, yeah, he's like constantly yelling and it's very melodramatic. And and that was why I thought, you know, he he implies that they could uh, torture Puyi or that they maybe have tortured other people if they don't confess in a in a forthcoming way and and Puyi does i mean he at one point right the governor chastises him for confessing too much for basically taking the blame for anything that they right. want to put on him um so he doesn't end up getting tortured but i thought that they were kind of implying that that could have happened but i you know i just didn't get it's not that that yang rao cheng is bad in the role i just didn't get the bond that they seem to be wanting to convey between Puyi and this prison governor, especially as we see in that that penultimate scene where somehow, and we don't know how, the prison governor has now been arrested himself and accused of some crime, and we don't know what. And Puyi is trying to say, no, this is a good man. He's a teacher. And and I just didn't under like, what did he teach Puyi? What what how was Puyi's life enriched by this guy? I didn't get any of that. Hmm. I think it's also fair when you're saying that you don't know why he was arrested. And this is what I'm saying. Like there are so many layers that are actually, this seems like an absolute insane time to be living in China, right? Like right. there were warlords, uh, there's the forbidden city, there's China as a whole, there's the Japanese invasion. There's, uh, I don't know. I can't even tell you how many wars are going on here because you have world war two you have the Sino-Japanese War, the second one. There's, a, you know, and like we said, there are, there are all these warlords staking claims. Like, just must have been it's just absolutely nuts to like live there at that point in time. Um, so yeah, I, I do I do think those elements are the difficult elements, and um, that's why I keep going back to like some of the beautiful shots that Storaro has created and the uh, art design. Like, there's that one shot. Where it's uh, he's still Puyi's still like a little boy, and they're having like a celebration for his birthday, and the camera comes up behind him, and you just see like this glow of yellow, and it's that or orange, and it's the balloon, and it's just like it's so beautiful, like it's like take your breath away, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, there's some beautiful stuff, and during that period where he has those like thousands of people just sort of there to worship him, essentially, I mean you know, this little boy just like running around and then he turns the corner and there's these like people lined up bowing to him or whatever. It It is, it is pretty impressive to behold. And I think there's moments that are sort of sensual and, you know, again, having seen only these Bertolucci movies that are very erotic, and that is something that he's known for is creating these erotic films. You know, to me, the handful of scenes where we get that between Puyi, like, and his wives or between, um, Wan Rong and that uh, the Japanese spy who who comes in and is played by uh, Maggie Han, who I thought was quite good. Um, and there's that scene where there's so, some kind of lesbian toe sucking going on in that scene. And I mean, it, on the one hand, it's sort of jarring because it seems a little out of place in this, this buttoned up historical film. But on the other hand, I feel like those scenes were some of the only times where I I was like drawn in because he's really indulging in that. I think there, you know, uh, to use another example, like the favorite uh, Yorgos Lanthimos movie, right? Like you could really get into the psychology and the relationships between the Empress and the spy that you're talking about. And I think that would have been interesting. Like there's a lot of like these like, quote unquote, mind fuck situations that you could have really 
gotten deeper with. Uh, Maggie Hunt's character was named Eastern Jewel, Josh. Eastern right. Jewel. And so. she's she's like, I think, like, like a fictionalized version of a real a real Japanese spy. And but yeah, that whole dynamic, like I would have watched that. There's that one. I want to watch the movie, The Empress and the Spy. That's, you want to watch an hour, two and a half hours of toast sucking. Right. Maybe not two and a half hours, but some, you know, these 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 smaller stories that could have been expanded on that to me had more psychological depth well, to them. Well, it seemed like, you know, I like that the Empress, like there's that one moment where she's like, you know, the spy is like kissing her back. And she goes, I told you, I hate you, right? And then they, like, have sex anyway. Um, and I think that was, like, an interesting dynamic. And did did she get the Empress hooked on the opium? I, I wasn't clear to me. She, If she didn't, she definitely enabled it. So right. it's possible that she did. I mean, she, well, didn't, she didn't have honorable intentions. No, definitely not. Um, Jeremy Thomas, the producer, said of the approval process by the Chinese government of the screenplay, it was less difficult than working with the studio system. They made script notes and made references to change some of the names. Then the stamp went on and the door opened as we came. So that was pretty cool that, um, you know, it's tougher to work with a Hollywood studio than a communist government. Right. I mean, on the other hand, I have a feeling that like with a studio, it's sometimes hard to know what they're going to want. Whereas I would imagine with the Chinese government, you can pretty easily anticipate you know, how, what they're not going to want you to say or do that would make them look bad or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, and in terms of changing names, I wonder if calling that character just the Eastern Jewel rather than using the real person's name, because that was, it was a, it, a Chinese Japanese spy, person. Right? Yeah, but she was yeah. a Chinese citizen who was spying right. for the Japanese and they right. really not wanted to mention that. Josh, uh, have you ever seen, and I have not seen it, there's a documentary about cinematography called Visions of Light from 1992? No, I haven't. I think that might be a one film that we had uh, had on a long list of possible films to talk about in our 1992 season. Uh, that would be good um, because, uh, one, I don't even remember us doing a 1992 season. Did we do that already? We did indeed. And uh, uh, you can you can listen to that in our archives at awesomemovieyear.com. I might have to because I don't recall it. Uh, and two, in it, in the film, Visions of Light, Storaro uh, talks about how he used light in this movie and they were supposed to represent the different stages of Puyi's life. Red the color of blood that starts the flashback and the opening, uh, you know, the opening moments and the opening doors, its birth. And orange is the warm color of the family in the Forbidden City. Yellow is the color of the emperor's identity in the sun. And green is the color of the tutor's bike and hat that represents knowledge. And guess what, Josh? When watching this, I didn't get it. I really didn't either. And, I, you know, I briefly thought of, you know, talking about color-coded films, I especially during some of those big, the like vistas of all the, the the servants and whatever in the Forbidden City. I thought about Zhang Yimou and his historical epic martial arts films like Hero and House of Flying Daggers, which are very color coded and very clearly color coded when you watch those films. And this was a bit more, I guess it's a bit more understated with that. And maybe if you're aware of it going in, you can pay attention and see how that is. It's more subtle. Did you know this is the first PG rated, PG 13 rated film to win an Academy Award for Best Picture? Well, I think the PG-13 was only introduced like a couple years before this. Well, that doesn't change that it was the first one, does it, Josh? It sure doesn't. Should we talk about Peter O'Toole? I feel like that's a he's a, such a huge deal, and that's a major element that we've barely even mentioned in this. Yeah, movie. I mean, I'm not going to say this was white savior guy, right? But this was like Western tutor, you know, teacher comes in, shows him a new way. And Peter O'Toole, we know, is a legend. But I, for... If you want to talk about a part that didn't have much meat to it, besides what's on the surface, this was very like, your highness, I think that's a wonderful idea. Your highness, I would go about this this way, right? And it was like, let me let me answer your question by asking you another question, right? I, did, I didn't think there was much to that character at all. That was like a derivative character. It yeah. was a real person. Right, right. And that is the thing is that like watching this, I felt absolutely that way. I was like, oh, look, here's the white person that they had to insert into this movie. Um, and but it is a real person. It, he was really uh, a British. Uh, Johnston. Yes. He he spent many, many, many years as a colonial official in China and was actually Puyi's tutor and one of the only 
uh, outsiders allowed into the Forbidden City and all that. So, I mean, he was a really important figure in Puyi's life and, in fact, came back into Puyi's life later on after, in the movie, they show him leaving and, and never returning. And he did actually uh, spend some time in Manchukuo, I believe, at one point. Hmm. So That would have been interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, but I think you're right that the way they present him it makes if you don't know that he's a real person, you know, it makes you think like, oh, here is the obligatory like white person that we had to put in the movie to appease mainstream like American audiences at the time or whatever. And he doesn't really have a whole lot to offer as a person. I, I, yeah, I don't think you say it like like Peter O'Toole's spine in this. It's got yeah. nothing. I think the role itself just has very little to offer at that moment in time. Right. I agree. But I, I you know, he's such a big figure. I mean, and also as an actor where a lot of these, I mean, someone like Joan Chen has gone on to have a very big career and is very, very famous. But at the time, these, you know, the Asian and Asian American actors that they cast weren't particularly well known. And so he's the one that everyone's going right. to gravitate to in terms of recognizing who he is. The names they were thrown out for Johnston besides Peter O'Toole, Sean Connery, who ended up winning Best Supporting Actor this year for The Untouchables. Uh, William Hurt, uh, wasn't he also nominated for Best Actor here? For Broadcast, Broadcast News, News, we were just saying, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the most interesting choice, Marlon Brando as Johnston. Yeah, I mean, of course, Brando oh. worked with Bertolucci on Last Tango in Paris. I could see Sean Connery doing it. I mean, he definitely fits. And the character is supposed to be Scottish, which Peter O'Toole is not really making any effort to sound Scottish. But obviously, Sean Connery is Scottish. Um, and never makes any effort to not sound Scottish. So it would always would have worked out. Yeah. Again, like it seems like we are in agreement of what works and what doesn't work. And um, it, it kind of goes back to what's on the page here. Yeah. I mean, I think you liked what worked more than I liked it. And I was more frustrated by the things that didn't work than you were. I think that's a good representation of who we are as people. Okay, so do we want to do we want to rate this out of five um, emperors? I don't know. <laughs> five uh, five emperors, Josh. That's what we're going with. Five no, forbidden you can, cities. You can come up with something better. Five forbidden cities. Let's rate it out of five forbidden cities. Five breasts to supple milk out of. Suckle that, that milk, was Josh. Coming. Let's no. do five forbidden cities. Yeah, let's do that. I gave it three. Um, it's not you know it's not unbearable. It's fine. It's just not great and. Um, the technical elements took it over the top for me. Yeah, I give it a two out of five. I Woo! Just, you Tokyo storied this thing. I, I really was like, I mean, I was I was feeling like, oh, you know, it's fine. But but at the, at the longer I was watching it and then I'm reflecting about it, I was like, I, it's hard for me to come up with something that I liked about it. So I can't really give it much of a higher rating than that. So, you know, I respect that it exists, but I didn't enjoy watching it at all. So... Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going three. Um, I agree with Jason. I think that, you know, the technical aspects really, you know, make it something. And I, I like the idea of it. It's just, it's way too long. What did you think of the music? Because I, I thought the music was a, a highlight of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Really cool music. Uh, interesting approach to like some of it being very traditional and some of it being kind of just using traditional instruments in a different way. Like it was cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the the combination of of different composers from different backgrounds with with Sakamoto and, and David Byrne. I mean, yeah. that's a that's a pretty big dichotomy there. So gets into something interesting. And uh, well, you know, we'll talk about those people a bit, I think, when we come back and get into the legacy of The Last Emperor. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season on the films of 1987, we are talking about the Best Picture winner, The Last Emperor, and the legacy of this film. I mean, Bertolucci, Bernardo Bertolucci, at this point was a pretty big deal already as an international auteur. And, you know, this kind of just cemented his legacy as like one of the most major figures, I'd say. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this being, you know, his most highly awarded film, I think. But uh, as you said, he went on to make this this quote unquote Oriental trilogy after this with The Sheltering Sky and Little Buddha and, you know, notable films after this, including Stealing Beauty and The Dreamers, which, like I said, I, I recommend that one. I liked it a lot. Uh, his final film from 2012 called Me and You, which didn't really seem to make much of an impact. And he died in 2018. 
So your recommendation, Jason, is to watch The Conformist. That is my recommendation. I'm telling you, it is wild and really showcases uh, him. Uh, I, I think even, you know, it's way better writing one, but also showcases his skill as a director and obviously Storaro, uh, his skill as a director of photography, which this also showcases. Storaro's still working. He shoots a lot of Woody Allen movies now. He's 83. Uh, Coup de Chance, the new one that's supposed to be really good. He was the DP of that. I don't know who says that movie is really good. I think the new one. Yeah. Everyone. Wait, isn't that the one that everyone's saying that's like the match point part two or something? I mean, I think that's like tonally what it's going for, but I I don't know. I I it seemed like it was well received in Venice, Josh, where which is in Italy, where Bertolucci is from. That is so true. Yeah. I mean, I may, I read a couple not positive reviews of it, but I mean, I think regardless, like it, you know, focusing your career on late period Woody Allen films is not exactly the best use of Vittorio Storaro's talent. Just saying he's 83 and he's still working. And if you look at, he does shoot a lot with Woody Allen, but he also shoots, I mean, Woody Allen shot with a lot of great cinematographers, right? So, yeah. um, but he's also, he's got like six projects in development. He's working constantly. I chose that one. Because it is a major, it's a major upcoming release from a major figure, Josh. But I apologize. If you want, I'll just read up everything. That he's no, no, no. With. I'm just saying that, that, that you know, uh, if, if that's what he's focused on, that's, that's sort of a waste of his talents. But, but I was not realizing that he had so much else going on. So, yeah, so you owe Vittorio Storaro an apology. I do. I do indeed. Again. <laughs> Sorry there. Vittorio. Yeah. Hey, Josh, we're going to go over the actors, but can I tell you who I was so delighted to see in this film, who I love is Victor Wong. Yes. Who, okay, good. I'm glad you like him too. Chen Bao Chen, who played Puyi's original tutor. He's just so great in everything. Um, I watched Dim Sum, a little bit of The Heart, which is Wayne Wang's movie. And um, he's the star of that. And he's great in that. Wayne Wang says he's. Uh, that Wong is like his alter ego. And as you know, uh, I, I, I recently watched Chan is Missing. And I recommend these early Wayne Wang movies. Really, really specific, great pieces of Asian-American cinema from the 80s when a lot of people weren't doing that. Yeah, I've seen Chan is Missing, which I, I remember liking. It was a while ago that I saw it. And and Victor Wong, to me, I mean, he's good in, I'm sure in, in, he's good in that and other Wayne Wang films. But, you know, I immediately thought of him from his kind of genre stuff, you know, Big Trouble in Little China. And I not that long ago watched all the Tremors movies. And he's in the, the I think, the, the first one and maybe one other one as this like shop owner in the little town where the Tremors happen. And he's in the Three Ninjas movies. And yeah. he has a very distinctive look. I mean, it was from having uh, Bell's palsy. But, you know, in a way, it gave him that kind of character actor distinctiveness he's so likable you just want to hug him yeah he and i believe in san francisco in like the 50s and 60s he was part of like pbs first as like a reporter and then as a photojournalist and has been associated with mark rothko but what i found interesting like what a career this guy had and then you can go and like um mic drop him and then just be like hey also did you know that um jack kerouac based a uh, character on me in the novel Big Sur, did that ever happen to you? Did the most famous of beat writers ever base a character on you? Yeah, he is fantastic. I mean, he has a small part in this film, but I'm, I'm with you that as soon as he popped up, I was like, oh, look, that guy. I couldn't remember his name, but, you know, of course, that that face is very recognizable. Yeah, I thought, like I said, him and um, the prison warden were the two kind of performances that were really the most fleshed out. Yeah, and that's interesting that that actor, Ying Ro Cheng, who plays the prison warden, was also the vice minister of culture for China at the time that they made this film. Well, he brought a lot of culture to this movie, so way to go. Yes. Some of the more prominent actors um, uh, in this film, John Lone, this was a breakout role for him, and for a while he was working pretty steadily. I think his biggest other role is in David Cronenberg's M. Butterfly, which is one of the few Cronenberg films that I haven't seen, actually. Um, But he's in... uh, the Hunted and Rush Hour 2. He uh, also worked a lot in Chinese TV after this and quit acting in 2007 
Um, and I was trying to see what he's been doing since then. Cause I mean, he's, he's still alive. He's only in his early fifties at the time. So I'm not sure what he has been doing since then, but, um, hasn't acted since, since the last film he was in was uh, war starring Jet Li and Jason Statham. So that's go out, go like out a champ. Yeah. Uh, two Golden Globe knobs for him. You mentioned The Haunted, which uh, reteamed him with Joan Chen. But also, Josh, we have to talk about uh, his work uh, in a film I haven't seen, but is on my to watch list. Year of the Dragon, the Michael Cimino movie. I think all these Cimino 80s movies are getting more reevaluated by the day, and I'm excited to watch it. I am not, as we discussed, the, my non-affinity for Michael Cimino in our Heaven's Gate episode, but I look forward to hearing your thoughts on it. Joan Chen, Twin Peaks, uh, became a pretty well-known director. Uh, uh, Shushu, the send-down girl in Autumn in New York. And she's going to be in the upcoming Brit Marling series, which we're all excited for, A Murder at the End of the World. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And, you know, of all the people, I mean, Peter O'Toole aside, of all the people in this film, Joan Chen has had the biggest career I mean, and and a varied career, you know, stuff like Twin Peaks and and she works really pretty evenly back and forth between American films and Chinese films and, you know, mainstream Chinese films, but also, you know, art films. She was in a Jia Zhenqi film called 24 City, um, you know, American indie films. I remember her in uh, Saving Face, which is a, a really nice, understated uh, American like lesbian drama from the director of The Half of It. Um, and I'm definitely looking forward to a murder at the end of the world. Um, Ang Lee's Lust Caution is a great, great film that she's in. And I thought it was interesting that in the film, uh, 1911 from 2011, which is a historical drama co-directed by Jackie Chan that deals with some of these same events. It's a Chinese film. And in that film, she plays the Empress Dowager. Mm, the woman who kind of bestows the emperorship on Puyi. Um, yes. And I, I and that was another confusing element to me is like, wait, why? Well, I mean, I get that she's kind of in charge of choosing who's next because of her position, but I, I wasn't really sure how they chose Puyi. Yeah, that wasn't clear to me either. And even reading a bit about him, like he was related to the the emperor prior to him had no children, so didn't have a direct heir. So uh, I'm guessing getting into a King Ralph situation, aren't right. we? <laughs> King Ralph co-starring Peter O'Toole. Um, but I'm guessing that that was part of the reason and Puyi was like his half nephew or something like that. So I don't know if he was the most direct descendant at that point, or maybe there were a number of descendants with the same potential claim and the Dowager was allowed to choose among them. I, I agree with you though. It was very confusing. A lot of these actors, if you like go over their filmographies, like I mentioned, Year of the Dragon, you mentioned Big Trouble in Little China. It's it's in a way like it's nice that they all got to work together so much, but it's also depressing of how few opportunities there were for Asian American actors back in the 80s. Yeah, that's true. And because most of these, I mean, this is a film, obviously it's in English, you know, so they cast Asian American actors mostly rather than actual Chinese actors. But but a lot of those, you know, people like John Lone and Joan Chen, for example, you know, they, they're able to go back and forth between Chinese films and American films, you know, to kind of fill in those opportunities that were maybe missing in, in American movies. I love that. And I think, you know, Steve Yeun has kind of done some of that recently. And I hope we see more of that. We got to chat a little about Peter O'Toole, Josh. Uh, he has tied with Glenn Close for the most Oscar nominations without winning an Oscar kind of a bummer. I know they gave him the honorary Oscar back in the day, but he does have one BAFTA, one Emmy, and four Golden Globes. He's uh, he's in a movie called Lawrence of Arabia. Hmm. Yeah. And, and another movie, movie called The Lion in Winter. Have you heard of these films, Josh? I think so. Yeah. Okay. And Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia is a movie that this was compared to a lot. Another big historical epic, you know, about a, a, a figure who is kind of there during all of these major upheavals in history and you can follow that history through the life of that character um more more proactive i think than Puyi is though yeah uh do you i mean you know goodbye mr chips the ruling class is there anything where you're like yeah that you would you, you really love peter o'toole well i mean aside from king ralph <laughs> I mean, I was looking at, you know, in terms of the legacy, like what he did after this. And, you know, in, in the later part of his career, he had some smaller roles. 
but uh, you know, of course, Ratatouille is great. You know, yeah. he, he brings such such gravitas to the role of that that critic Anton Ego. Um, a later film that he was in called Venus that I think he might have actually gotten an Oscar nomination for that in one of these like, hey, you're a big deal and we're going to throw this to you for this smaller film. But I thought was was quite good. Um, so those are a couple that, I mean, Venus is one that I think is not as as well known. Everybody's heard of Ratatouille, but both of those in terms of his later career. I, uh, I I'm going gonna, gonna to throw out a recommendation. Uh, my favorite year, 1982, um, about um, Marklin Baker. Yes, Larry from Perfect Strangers. He is kind of on set as like an assistant to Peter O'Toole, who is the big star of a 1950s variety show. And um, it's it's good. Actually, that's not true. He plays uh, he plays Errol Flynn in that. But you should watch the movie. OK, sounds confusing, but I'll uh, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> um Dave, do you want to say anything about Ryuchi Sakamoto, who is, I mean, who just died fairly recently and is yeah. really one of the most famous film composers out there? Uh, I, I really enjoyed the score here, but I actually don't know much about his music. Uh, Sakamoto was a pioneer in uh, electronic music, synth music. So you can look up some of that stuff that he was doing over there. I'll have to. Yeah. He also acted in this movie. He was pretty good, I thought, Josh, as uh, Amokasu. Yeah, I mean, he had a career mainly as a composer, but also occasionally acting. Um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence is, I think, his most well-known acting role, his biggest part with David Bowie, which I haven't seen that, but is, you know, has a very good reputation. Yeah, he did the score for The Revenant. He has an Oscar, a BAFTA, a Grammy, two Golden Globes. Uh, look up the song Energy Flow, Josh. I Energy will. Flow. He also did the music for the uh, Barcelona Olympics in 1980 to 1992. But uh, as you had said, Josh, we, we talked about David Byrne here, and uh, he's having a moment right now, possible tour with the Talking Heads going on again. You know I'll be there. Yeah, the re-release of Stop Making Sense, which of course, we did a whole episode on Stop Making Sense in our 1984 season and talked a lot about the Talking Heads there. So, uh, And you got to mention Kung Su because he was the third member of that score team, and he's a well-known composer also. Yeah, I mean, I think those other two are so famous, maybe they're overshadowing him, but all of them contributing to that very interesting score. Uh, anything else you want to say about the legacy of this film? I mean, you know, there's a lot of other character actors that we could talk about, um, and they're all worthy of doing it. We're going to, if you want us to mention someone, if you want to know more, just just uh, hit us up on the socials and we'll tell you more. Josh, I think the last fact I have to tell you is this. An Italian chef was brought in to cook for the international cast. He brought with him 22,000 bottles of Italian mineral water, 450 pounds of Italian coffee, 250 gallons of olive oil. I hope it was extra virgin, and I imagine it was, and 4,500 pounds of pasta. Okay. That is a lot. Thank you for those statistics, Jason. You know, Marco Polo brings back the noodle. Then spaghetti happens, and now we're making spaghetti on the mm. set of this. See, it's mm. full circle moment. Josh. Yeah, cultural mm. exchange back and forth. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So that is The Last Emperor, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. As Jason said, you can uh, ask us whatever you like on uh, social media online. Ask away, babies. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials there, fellas uh, and ladies. Uh, I am uh, at, uh, 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 yeah, that's a thing. Uh, you can just find me there. I don't know. What do you want from me? Your information? <laughs> oh, okay. Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. We can also go go for Jason on Letterboxd. Eat this comedy. Show's coming back. We're at awesomemovieyear.com, awesomemovieyear on Facebook and Instagram, awesomemoviepod on Twitter. Josh sent us those blue sky invites, so get ready. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting for it. So find some old things for me at joshbellhateseverything.com. I am at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter, X, and on Blue Sky, and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And if you are on Letterboxd, of course, connect with us. But also, if you uh, watch one of our films, if you review a film that we've talked about on this episode, an upcoming episode, an older episode, tag Awesome Movie Year. On, uh, on Letterboxd and we can uh, connect with you and we'd love to hear what you think about the movies that we talk about. And uh, you can listen to our- You movies. just have to hashtag awesome movie here and then yeah, we'll find just, it. Just add a tag. if when you, uh, when you log a film or write a review, add a tag of awesome movie year and 
you know, you can click on that and uh, connect with other things that uh, we have written. As long as Jason, as long as we remember to also tag our entries, then we can uh, we can connect uh, with people. One of our many assistants in the awesome movie or offices will alert us to these tags. So yes, tag away, friends. Yes, and uh, and listen to our producer David Rosen's awesome podcast, piecing it together. Yeah, check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Jason, what are we doing in our next episode? Josh, is it our friend Dave's pick? I think it is. Dave Evil oh, did too. Oh, I'm so oh, excited, guys. Dave already. <laughs> nah, Dave, go ahead. <laughs> I'm so excited. Evil Dead 2, of course. Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell. It's going to be the best. Dave, are you rewatching every Evil Dead in, uh, in the entire... Uh, subsect of evil dead material in preparation for this one i haven't decided yet but uh at least i will be just glowing as i rewatch evil dead 2 for the first time in like two years so i can't wait i look forward to that tune in next time for evil dead 2 and thanks for listening to awesome movie year thank you for listening to awesome movie year Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.